Well, uh, so did you notice I got new glasses? I said, yes, um, I do have new glasses. And so, right, so we're taking, uh, we're, we're taking a little vote tonight in the service. Uh, we're going to put next to the sandals vote, uh, whether you like it or not. And uh, it goes in the round file with all the rest. But um, all right. Um, let me, uh, let me pray. Hey, if this is your very first time here, welcome to you. Uh, my name is Pastor Mike, and uh, we're in the midst of a series here uh, that's called The Why It's on the Book of Romans and other, and other things. And inside of your uh, message, uh, your, your uh, program, is a white message note sheet. I encourage you to take that out because we use it every week as we go through our time of teaching. So let me pray, and then we'll uh, jump in. <coughs> Father, thank you for what you're doing here at Rocky Peak. We are so thankful to be a part of it. We sense your spirit moving God, our hearts are hungry for you. We want to know more. And so we pray that you'd come today. You'd meet us in a powerful way. You'd unfold your word in a way that we can understand it. I pray for freedom as I share it, God. I pray for ears to hear as we all together gather around to hear what you'd say, what the Spirit would say to us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so the story starts today. Uh, The year is 1900. We're off a small little Greek island, uh, uh, Antikythera is the, the name of it. And it's just off the southern tip of Greece. And, and our captain for our ship is Demetrius Kondas. And he's uh, returning. He's, he's taken his whole boatload of guys, and they've gone down to the African coast to, uh, to, to dive for sponges. And they're on their way back now, and there's a big storm at sea. And so they have to pull in to find shelter there at the, the island of Anakthera. And while they're there, after the, the storm passes, he decides to... Uh, they're about ready to pull out, but uh, the captain decides, hey, this is incredible. Look at this water here. It's just, it's beautiful. It's clear. You can see, you know, way, way down. How do we send some divers down and see if there's any sponges here that we can harvest? And so, uh, so sure enough, uh, diver number one, the scout diver, gets sent down. And, and, you know, kind of picture this. He's got the, the canvas suit, the full canvas suit, right? And he's got the, the brass or, um, you know, copper helmet. He's got the airline. This is year 1900, remember. And so they send him down into 180 feet of water, down to the bottom, 60 yards down to the bottom. And he's not down there very long, and all of a sudden he's pulling on the rope. It's time to come up. It's not time yet. Why would he be pulling so hard? Something must go wrong. So sure enough, they pull him up. When they get him up, he is freaking out. He is scared to death. He's just like, he can't. And they finally calm him down. What's going on? And he says, I saw down there in the distance, I saw the water so clear, I could see this, this it was a huge heap, a pile of, of like corpses and, and like horses and, and animals. And it's just, you know, I'm not going down there again. And everyone's like thinking, oh, man, you're taking in too much carbon dioxide. You know, you're like, you're losing it. And, uh, but finally, he's so insistent that the, the captain says, well, I'm going down to check it out. So he suits up and he goes down. What he finds when he gets down there is it, it's, a, it's an ancient Roman cargo ship that's been down there for 2,000 years. And in a heap, there's over 100 ancient, beautiful statues, Greek statues that have been lost for over 2,000 years. And so sure enough, when the Greek government hear about this, they decide to do an expedition. So they send their team out there. In the next two years, they're scouting out this site. And while they're down there, they also find this incredible little mechanism. It's like 13 inches tall. It's seven inches wide, three and a half inches deep. It's made of uh, like bronze. In the bronze, there's like 3,000 Greek characters inscribed. This is gorgeous. Inside is full of gears. It's obviously some sort of uh, scientific mechanism. 
And they bring it up and they finally decipher and they figure out what, what they finally discover. It's the oldest scientific mechanism ever discovered in the history of the world. And as far as I know, to this day, it's called the Anacothera mechanism. And what it was is they, they analyzed, it turns out those 3,000 Greek characters are actually like an owner's manual on how to use it. And they're not sure how the ancients figured it out, but this was actually an instrument they would use to, to plot the direction of the planets and to predict solar equip, uh, uh, eclipses. And uh, back in 1978, remember Jacques Cousteau? Remember you said okay, Jacques Cousteau and, uh, and a, a, another guy, um, who is, a guy named Michael Edmonds, who is a professor of astrophysics at the University of Cardiff in the United Kingdom. They actually led the final expedition to go and check out the site. And this is what Michael Phillips, Dr. Michael, uh, or Dr. Edmonds, My, Michael Edmonds said he, about the uh, Anacothera mechanism. He said, it's, it's the only thing of its kind that we have in the history of the world. Its design is beautiful. Its astronomy is exactly right. In terms of its uh, historic value and scarcity value, it's more valuable than the Mona Lisa. Isn't that amazing? So you're saying, what does that have to do with anything? Well, of course, we'll come back to that later. So today we're uh, continuing the series that we've been in now, what, for a couple months, uh, uh, called The Way. And uh, it's a series, a study of the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul, uh, one of the greatest thinkers, greatest spiritual leaders of all time, and of course for us, one of the greatest Christ followers of all time. And what we're doing in this series, if you're new, is we're just kind of, uh, kind of sitting down with him week by week and letting him mentor us. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? What does it mean to be part of his ancient movement that Jesus started that in the early church was called the way? So every week what we're doing is we're starting off with a passage in, the, in his letter to the Romans, which was one of his longest and most famous letters, and then we're uh, using that as a gateway, an entry point to the rest of his writing. So the last time that we were together in this section of Romans, uh, we were looking at the second half of Romans chapter 1. Now, um, in this section... Paul is beginning to unpack uh, what he calls his gospel, his message. And you remember if you were here a couple weeks before Easter, he said that, that his gospel is the ultimate good news, bad news story, right? Uh, the bad news is that we are the fallen race. The bad news is that we have rebelled against God. We're under his judgment or under his wrath. The good news is that in spite of this, God, for some reason, we can never explain, still loves us. And he sends his own son to rescue us and to forgive us. And so we're calling this opening four chapters of Romans, this first mini-series, we're calling it Fallen and Forgiven, right? In the first couple of chapters, Paul is laying out uh, an indictment against the human race, really like a, almost like a law court scene where he's bringing the charges against the human race. He starts off by bringing his charges against sort of the pagan followers of his day, kind of the, I call them the wild children, you know? Kind of the wild kids. You, you know, these are the people in life we talked about them last time. Like, you know what God wants you to do? You just don't care. You're going to go do what you want. Uh, kind of the wild kids. And so in chapter 1, uh, he talks about that. And, and it's really, uh, in his day, it was really the pagan followers, or kind of the pagans of his idol worshipers that really fit in this category. And so he, he starts here in chapter 1. And basically what his argument is, what Paul says, is that God has revealed himself to the human race through creation but that we have rejected that information because we don't really want to follow God and that we've kind of gone our own way, but there's a price to pay whenever you reject spiritual truth in your life. 
And when you reject spiritual truth, the lights tend to go out spiritually. And it opens us up to confusion. And he details three major areas of confusion that happen in the human race that are very contemporary for today. One is a confusion about creation. What is our material world and what does it say about God? One is a, crea- one is a, a confusion about spirituality. Well, who is God? How do we have a relationship? What does it mean to be spiritual? The third area of confusion is our sexuality. How does that fit into our lives? And so in this, this one passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul really delves into three major topics. And I promise you, before, right before Easter, we're going to come back and we're going to deal with these uh, some more. So we're going to be doing that today. So what I want to do today is before we continue on with this indictment in chapters 1 and 2 that Paul is bringing, I want to do kind of a sidebar. You know, like if you ever watched Law and Order, you know, and, they, the, and so you have the courtroom scene, right? But you have the, the, uh, the attorneys go forward. They talk to the judge. That's called a sidebar. You have a little discussion. Well, before we go on with this court scene, and Romans, we're doing a sidebar today. And we're going we're to focus on these three areas of cultural confusion that are so relevant to our lives. So there in your note sheet, you have a section, and it's called Cultural Confusion, uh, Creation, Spirituality, Sexuality. And we're going to look at these three, uh, three confusions. And the first one, cultural confusion number one, uh, we're going to start at uh, chapter 1 and verse 18. So why don't you just get your Bibles, and we'll turn there, and then I'll give it to you. Chapter 1 and verse 18. So here's cultural confusion number one. It has to do with creation. And uh, in, in the film, the, the sentence goes like this. The tagline says that all life is one big accident. Okay, that's the cultural confusion that we have uh, in our culture today about uh, creation. And, of course, it flows out of this, this passage. So here's how he puts it in chapter 1 and verse 18. Uh, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So Paul says that the, the core crime of the human race and God has revealed himself in creation. We don't want to hear it, kind of putting our fingers in our ears. And that we actually suppress the truth about God. And so in verse 19, he says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain. Okay, so Paul, what are you talking about? How has God made the truth about himself plain? Well, verse 20, Well, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen. In other words, what God is like has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So, so Paul is using what we would call today the argument of intelligent design. That as you look at the creation around you, it's just kind of obvious that someone made this thing. It, it's beautiful, it's brilliant. It's complex, it's creative, it's artistic. And that so a creation means that there has to be a creator and there's certain things we know about him, like we just, like we just said, right? So, so, that, so that's the issue, that we don't want to hear that, and so we kind of reject that truth. And he says, now, when we reject that truth, the lights tend to go out on us spiritually. And we open ourselves up to confusion. So he says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. So that would have been the appropriate response, right? There's this amazing God, powerful, brilliant, uh, beautiful, artistic, 
We need to find this God. We need to thank this God. We need to find out what he wants us to do. That would be an appropriate response. But that's not what we do as a race. Um, and, and so we, we reject that. And he says, and, there, and what happens then is your thinking becomes futile and their, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So here's the principle we talked about last time. When we reject spiritual truth, it's the dimmer switch principle, remember? That, the, that we, we obey spiritual truth, the light gets turned up. We disobey spiritual truth, light goes down. We, we become darkened. And notice he says, um, and although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now, so what Paul says is that here's what should happen. You should look at the creation around you. And if we're not fallen people, what we would do is we would look around the creation and go, duh, someone made this thing. It's am- and he's amazing, and we need to seek after him. But he says that there's something wrong with us. We don't want to seek the truth. We don't want to know the truth about God because we want to be able to do our own thing. And God is inconvenient, right? And so what we're going to do is we're going to reject that truth so we can go our own way. But, of course, there's this uh, price to pay. Now, you see this in our culture today because, um, you know, you, you look at our, uh, our, uh, kind of our current worldview right now and you see it in our culture. He says, what should happen is we should be looking at the world, say it's obvious there's a creator. Who is this creator? But what do we do generally as our culture today? We look at this amazing planet and amazing cosmos that we're in, and we say, wow, that's amazing uh, how that all came together over a long period of time by itself. Right? That's what we do as a culture. And so Paul says you can see how crazy uh, that is. Now, um, <coughs> He wants to break this down. Of course, we're talking now about the theory of what I'm going to call naturalistic evolution, right? And so I want to be clear today for our purposes. I am not talking about what we often call microevolution, if you take science. Um, you know, microevolution is the way uh, species adapt to their environment. It's a very creative way God's designed. There's no question that's true, and that's the way God's his part of his brilliance. We're not even talking about theistic evolution, where some people believe that God created the world, he uses uh, evolution, he's ongoingly doing that. Okay, you know, so I'm not, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is what we call naturalistic evolution, which basically looks at this beautiful, incredible, creative world and says, wow, it's amazing, it happened by itself. Okay, that's the thing. Now, the thing is, you, you, you kind of look at that, and at face value, you're saying, Really? I mean, I don't know if you've studied any science or the universe, but this is incredibly, like, really? That's the best we can do as a culture? It, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. Really, it's kind of silly. It's, kinda, it's just sort of ridiculous. And yeah, that's the best we can do. I mean, like, let's go back to the story we started the day with, right? The story of uh, Anna Cathera. So you've got the, let's say that that day, this captain, you know, the, the sailor comes up, captain says, okay, I'm going down, check it out for myself. He comes down, he comes back, he says, you're not going to believe this. I found a hundred statues. And on top of that, I found this amazing mechanism. It, it's made out of bronze. It's uh, all these metal gears inside, extremely complicated. They all fit perfectly. Um, it's got 3,000 Greek letters in there that tell you exactly how to run this mechanism I mean, it's, be- it's awesome. I wonder how long it took for that to come together. <laughs> now, I, honestly, if you're a shipmate, you'd look at him and go like, man, he's been down too long. He got too much CO2. Uh, well, what do you mean, boss? Well, I'm just thinking it must have taken a long time. First of all, the metal had to form, you know, 
And then over time, um, gosh, those, they had to become gears. They had to come like just through the sand, just thin the water, just kind of rub down till we've got all these, these gears, you know. And then, and then they're, like they wash together perfectly. And then, why, I don't know how that brown box got around it, but that's awesome. <laughs> then the metal came, and then that writing. Who would have ever thought that, you know, that, that like rocks would create that kind of writing? And we'd be looking at them and going, are you serious? I mean, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And yet here's the point. The mechanisms that run our universe are like so much more complex than that device. They put it to shame. Here's the irony. The irony is that we live in a day and age where more than any other time in world history, we understand the complexity of this world. And yet the irony is, is understanding the incredible complexity. And I'm not, it doesn't matter whether you're talking at a macro level at the cosmos or whether you're talking at the micro level of like biochemistry or subatomic particles. If you've ever studied just any one of those areas, the intricacy is unbelievable. And so can you see the irony? That here we have more information on the incredible complexity of the universe than ever in the history of the world. And yet more than ever in the history of the world, you have the most brilliant thinkers in a culture saying it just happened by time and chance. And when you look at it that way, you're going, really? Amazing. You know, I, a few years ago, I read a book and, uh, by a guy named Dr. Hugh Ross. I know some of you probably read some of his stuff. But uh, it's a... Uh, I probably read the book, I don't know, seven years ago, and it was three years old timer. It's probably, it's over 10 years old now, so there's probably even better stuff out there. But in the book, it was fascinating. Uh, Hugh is a, he's an astrophysicist. Um, he was not a Christian, not a believer, and then later in his life, he began to become spiritually hungry. He said, I'm going to read through all the ancient holy books and see if there's anyone, anything to them. And when he came to the Bible, it struck him that it was so unique that it's the only ancient holy book that totally fit with the scientific understanding of the universe as an astrophysicist. And as a result of that, he ended up becoming a Christ follower. But in this book, he describes the complexity of our universe. And, and, and he says at this point in time, and like I said, this is like 12 years ago now in the books, and I know that there's more of this now. But he said at that point in time, there were 26 parameters that uh, astrophysicists uh, and scientists have figured out, 26 parameters or conditions that have to happen in the universe as a whole, the cosmos, for life to exist. And on top of that, for life to exist in our specific solar system, there had to be 33 specific conditions. So at the time, and three of these conditions had just been found the couple, last couple of years, so I'm sure there's more than now. But at the time, there were 59 conditions, and these were no small things. Uh, these were things like, uh, for example, the size of protons and electrons in the making up of a molecule. If they were any bigger or any smaller, the molecules would not be able to form. They were things like the, uh, the force of, that holds the uh, like atoms together. Um, that holds the, uh, kind of the, you know, the electrons, the protons, it holds them all together. Uh, if it was any greater, there would be no hydrogen in the world. And hydrogen is a basic building block of all things. And uh, if they were any smaller, all we would have is hydrogen in the world. Um, the, uh, in our cosmos, if we were 2% closer to the sun, we would fry. If we were 2% farther from the sun, we would freeze. Um, 
if the way, you know, and we spin on our axis every 24 hours, if it was any slower, that, the, you would, that part of the world would freeze while it was away from the, the sun. If it was any faster, the velocity of winds on planet Earth would destroy all life. And there was 59, at this point in time, 59 of these parameters. And catch this, any one of these are off, we're history. We're toast, you see. And what's becoming more and more clear is that we live in what has been called the privileged planet. We live, in a, we live in, a, in, a, in a place that's been designed for life. It's just becoming clear. In fact, in the book, he uh, will quote several like, secular physicists that have been some of the biggest names of the last half of the 20th century. Uh, for example, I put a couple of these quotes on your note sheet. For example, one was Fred Hoyle. Uh, he was one of the greatest uh, astrophysicists after World War II, second half of the century. He was the guy that first used the term Big Bang theory. Uh, he has been, when he died in 2001, uh, he was called one of the most creative and original thinkers, astrophysicists of our, of our era. And here's what he said. But he was, uh, this guy, big time anti-Christian too. But here's what he said. A super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with the chemistry and biology. <laughs> yes. Amen. All right. Uh, Next quote, uh, Ari Davies. Ari Davies is an astrophysicist that helped put together those 33 parameters we described earlier, uh, the list of that. He was one of the scientists who worked on that. Outs he was earlier in his life, outspoken atheist. Later it changed the more he studied the universe. But here's what he says. There is for me powerful evidence that there's something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. Uh, here's one of my favorite from Robert Griffiths. He, uh, back in 1984, uh, he, well, first of all, he's a, he's a professor at Carnegie Mellon, you know, on the, on the East Coast, very prestigious. He won the Heinemann uh, Prize for Mathematical Physics in 1984, no slouch. And so here's what he says. If we need an atheist for a debate, I go to the philosophy department. The physics department isn't much use. You see, and so what's happening over time is that the evidence is just piling up and piling up and piling up. This place has been designed for, for life. And yet Paul says it should be obvious, and yet how is it that a culture can be so blind? Well, here's what Paul says. When you reject the truth about God, the lights go out spiritually, morally, and intellectually. And, and what happens to a culture is you begin to lose the ability to discern truth, you see. Now, why would we do that? Why would we choose to be blind? Well, it's very simple. If there is no creator, there is no one to report to, right? And that means we can do what we want. And so that's the appeal. But here's the price you pay. All of a sudden, you wake up. If you buy into that, all of a sudden, you wake up one day, and guess what? You find out if there is no creator, there is no purpose or meaning in life. Because all of life is one huge accident. And there is no basis for morals or right and wrong in life. Because if there's no creator, then there is no one to say what's right or wrong. Who's to really say? There's a reason in our culture right now why a purpose-driven life is so popular. There's a reason why Oprah's a webcasting thing on this kind of this, uh, you know, this whole thing she's doing right now or recently did where the, the new earth thing with this guy, you know, Eckhart uh, Tolle, 
is so popular. He's helping you find your purpose in life. Why? Because a culture that gets rid of God, there is no purpose. And we were created for purpose, and there is a hunger for purpose. It has to happen in a culture that doesn't believe in a creator. You see, there is a vacuum that's there. And so what it means is what all of a sudden you wake up and you you live in the midst of a culture where there is no reason to live, and there is no sense of right and wrong, and all of a sudden it leads to a breakdown of all human relationships and all human culture, and where are we in our world today? You see what's happening? We are on that path. We are on that path in our Western world culture because we have just chosen to ignore the reality of a creator. See? Okay, so that's confusion number one. Now let's go into confusion number two. Cultural confusion number two has to do with spirituality, our relationship with God. And here's, the, here's how it plays out in our culture today, that all gods are created equal. Now, this is the prevailing culture, uh, worldview of our culture today, um, and it's equally as crazy as view number one, because if you stop and think about it, uh, it just it makes absolutely no sense. Um, you know, when it, basically the view goes, and you hear this all the time at your work or, you know, friends or whatever, it's a, basically what we believe as a culture is that, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe about God as long as you're sincere and as long as it works for you, those are the two code words, right? If it's sincere, if you're sincere, you sincerely believe it, and it works for you, then great. Why? Because we're all describing the same reality. That's the underlying belief, that we're all describing the same reality. You know, you call it Buddha, I call it Jesus, you call it Confucius, whatever. It's really, it's all the same thing, heaven, nirvana, whatever. It's just, it's all the same reality. The thing that doesn't make any sense about this, if you stop and think about it, which most people, frankly, really haven't, but if you stop and think, what makes no sense is if you were to ever study, just do a, just a, even a cursory study of, say, for example, the, uh, the major religions of the world, what you would find is that the thing that's true about this is that there is a basic moral code that's much in common with a lot of the world's religions. And that makes sense because Paul will tell us later in Romans chapter 2 that God has written his law on our hearts, that he has, he has planted his intuitive sense of right and wrong in every human being. And so it makes sense that all the, the major religions kind of come up with that, that code. But here's the thing that makes no sense. If you ever compare they, the major religions of the world, they have a totally different worldview of who God is, who we are, how our relationship works, what the future is. I mean, they're diametrically opposed if you've ever. It's impossible that they would all be saying the same thing because they're saying opposite things. They're saying, I mean, just like one example. If you're in Hinduism, Hinduism teaches you that the whole world is an illusion. The physical, all physical reality is an illusion. So if you are a Hindu, what you want to do is through meditation, escape the illusion of the material world And so when a person dies, they go back into the stream of eternal consciousness. There is no you. There is no self. That is all an illusion. And you come to Christianity, and Jesus says, no, you are an eternal being. You are created. You will live forever in either heaven or hell, you see. And and the physical world is so important, opposite of being illusion, it's so important that God is going to become part of the physical world to redeem the physical world. Do you understand what I'm saying here? 
This is like the total opposites of one another in terms of worldview. And yet we will, you know, go along with this that, okay, you know, that all paths can lead to the same, all saying really uh, the same thing. Now, um, so this is what Paul's going to say, that when we reject the truth about God in creation, the next step is that we create our own spiritualities because we all have a need for God, and so we're going to create something to replace the true God, you know, even if we reject him. So let's see what he says in chapter 1 and verse uh, 21. He says, for the, although they knew God, <coughs> verse 21, for all they knew, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened, and although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And here's, here we go. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. So he says that basically that we replaced the real God with false gods. All right? Now, Paul says, how crazy is this? You look at the um, amazing world around you with its complexity and beauty, and you, you know, hey, there's someone had to make it. So, so what do you do? You go out and you get a piece of wood, and you take it home. You cut it, and Isaiah is going to say this back in Isaiah. You cut it in half. You start a fire with one half. You take the other half, and you carve yourself an idol. And when you get done carving it, then you bow down in front of this idol, this piece of wood that you just carved, and, and you say, thank you very much for making this incredible world. Thank you for making me. Here's some gifts for you, my dear idol. Um, and, and would you please protect me in my life? Now, Paul says, now, how crazy. Do you see what I'm saying? Proclaiming to be uh, wise, they become fools. And, but before we're so quick to say, well, if I were there, I wouldn't have done that. Just look at what we just taught about creation. It just happened by chance over a long period of time. We bow down in our culture to the gods of time and chance, right? Those are our gods. And so having a need for God in our life, we will continue as a culture to seek for him and to create alternate gods. Now, around the world, idolatry is still big today. Not big here in the United States, a little market for it, but big around the world. But in our country, in our culture, what we do is we create alternate religious systems, that do the same thing that idols do. They try to provide our need for God while letting us do what we want. So, I, for example, like this week, I went onto YouTube, and I was, <laughs> uh, didn't know that was going to be so funny. Um, like, how old do you think I am? No, <laughs> like, hey, look, at he's on the internet. That's amazing. Um, uh, so, so I'm on YouTube, and I'm looking for clips of Oprah, because I missed her in the afternoon one day. And no, just kidding. Um, so I'm looking for uh, clips of Oprah because I wanted to do a little research on this whole thing. You know, this big thing, this this web class she's been doing with uh, Eckhart Tolle, and uh, on the new the new Earth thing. And uh, you know, gosh, she claims that over a half a million people are checking out. And so I just wanted to kind of check it out in light of this message. And so it's so like, what's that? Oh, I thought you were talking to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like, like, like uh, oh, okay. No, you're not talking to me, right? Don't talk to me. Just talk to them. Don't talk to me. All right, so, okay, so. 
So anyway, so I go online, and so, I'm, and so of course, you know, now Oprah is, she's really pushing this guy, right? This guy is the guru. This guy is the guy who knows what's going on. This guy's telling it like it is. This guy really understands what Jesus was about. Uh, Jesus really didn't come to start a movement. We've got him all wrong, but this guy understands what Jesus is about. So, okay. So I go on, and I, I'm listening to this guy. And, uh, and, you know, very popular, right? Big time popular right now. Look at your note sheet. This is what he said. Now, this is, if you want to check it out on YouTube, <laughs> I put the reference there. <laughs> Eckhart Tolle, YouTube, and it's called Eckhart Tolle on Being Yourself, all right? Now, now, this is very serious stuff, right, in our culture. And this is what he says about God. And this is an example of kind of the false spiritualities that happen in our lives when we give up on the, the true God, the creator God, right? Okay, so he says, God or your essential nature. Now, catch that. Did you, you see a problem with that? God is your essential nature. In other words, you and God are the same. If you get to your core, not at the surface, but if you get to your core, you and God are the same. He's your essential nature. Now, okay, so Paul's talking about making gods in our own image, right? Now we do with idols. We create them. Okay, we'll, we'll, make, a, we'll make idols like, uh, like what? Like, you know, Zeus. We'll make them look like a man, like in our image. Uh, if you're in Egypt, we'll make idols like what Paul says, like reptiles and, you know, birds. And they, it, the Israelites, they made the bull, right? Why? Because the bull was popular, God in Egypt. They just come out of Egypt. And so, so the idea of idols is we create gods in our own image. We project onto our God ourself so that we can now do what we want to do. We make gods like ourself, you see. And so that's what he's, he's saying. God or your essential nature is not something. God's not something. He's not content. He's not form. The best description through words is not what to say what it is not. And, and then you are left with what it is. <laughs> Catch this, very, this very significant, which cannot be named but can be known. Very interesting. Cannot be named but can be known. What's he saying? He's saying that if you go deep within yourself, you can experience God but the moment you try to attach words to him, you've misrepresented him. He can be known, but he cannot be named. Now, to be very interesting, we'll come back in a second. Now, but it, can, uh, but it cannot be known conceptually. God cannot be known conceptually. Notice he keeps calling him it. But it cannot be known conceptually because every concept is, again, a name and a form. It can be known simply easily in the silent space of stillness, which is in everyone. So there is a God, but if you want to experience him, you have to go deep within yourself because the deepest part of you is where he is. And But you cannot describe him conceptually. Now, catch this. What, did, what does the New Testament say about Jesus? Remember when he says you can't name him? Right? In the beginning was the Word. This is exactly what Jesus is. Jesus is a naming of God. 
Jesus is the naming of God. Remember what John says in John chapter 1. What he says is, no man has ever seen God at any time, but God the one and only who is at the side of the Father, he has made him known. The whole reason Jesus came was to make the unknowable known. You see? Now, can you see how different these concepts are? And can you see what are we left with in a culture that rejects the creation as a reflection of the creator? What what happens is we come to a place where we say the only way to know God is to experience him, but to never try to describe him in any way. Because the moment you do, you've lost him. You see? He's become unknowable. All right. Okay, let's talk about cultural confusion number three. Now, cultural confusion number three is about our sexuality. And it goes like this. All sex is good sex. (laughs) So I'll just end in prayer right there. And um, can't really think of any fault with that. No. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk about this one. Okay, so here's what Paul's going to say. That when we reject the truth about who God is, we get confused not only about who God is, but who we are. And one of the places it shows up first is in our sexuality because there's a strong and powerful drive. And so what he's going to say is obviously uh, sex is a good thing. Uh, God created it. It's his idea. Hopefully, we don't have to spend a lot of time defending that. Right? Okay, so we're, we're going with that. Um, but, of course, from a biblical point of view, God's point of view, um, is that sex is a good thing. It's designed to unite one man, one woman in a love relationship for the rest of their life. It's like a spiritual superglue. And what the Bible would say that when it's in that context, it's a powerful gift. But outside of that context, it can be very destructive. You actually lose yourself little bits at a time when you have sex outside that marriage relationship. You give, you lose, you give, you lose. There's a loss of self that happens. And so so sex is really a lot like fire, that uh, it can either warm you or it can burn you. Okay, so that's kind of the biblical view. Now, so what Paul's going to say is that one of the things that when we reject God in our life, we get fuzzy on who he is, we get fuzzy on who we are. And because sex is such a powerful drive, we begin to pursue our fallen desires to have sex with whomever, kind of sexual morality. And here's what he says, that that doesn't lead us to freedom, that leads us to destruction, a loss of self. He calls it degradation, a loss of self, okay, what we're supposed to be created to be. And in that process, if a person or a culture continues down that road long enough, it will eventually lead that culture or sometimes a person to a total confusion sexually. And what does what total confusion looks like? It looks like same-sex sexuality. It looks like a total confusion where now I am separate and alienated from my own body, who my body says I am and what my natural desire, my desires say I am. We've now become at odds. I'm at odds with my own identity. It's kind of a, a confusion at the deepest level. 
All right? So let's see what he says here. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over. In other words, because they rejected the truth about God. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart. Remember that destructive desires. We've talked about that. To sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies. The loss of yourself as God created you to be. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. Amen. And because of this. God gave them over to shameful lusts. And so there's a progression. God says, you want to reject the truth about me. You want to pursue self-destruction. I will let you go. I'll let you have your way. I give you over to that. But you will pay the price in your own self and in your own body for that choice. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. So first, the first step is what he calls sexual immorality, which is sex outside of marriage. Right? It's sex um, that is natural sex, normal sex, but with some, it's illicit. So, so it's natural but illicit. Now, if we continue down that path or a culture continues down, now we come to not just illicit but abnormal. So in, in verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves, catch this, the due penalty for their perversion. So there's a self-destructiveness about pursuing sexuality that is abnormal. That's what he's saying, okay? Now, um, I want to say a couple things um, about homosexuality, all right, because it's such a hot topic in our, our culture today. I don't have a lot of time for this. I just want to say a couple things. Number, the first thing I want to say is I don't think what Paul is saying here, and because I know that some of you struggle with this in your own life, I think it's very important for you to hear this, that Paul is not saying that every person who struggles with homosexual desires gets there as a result of excessive sexual morality. He's not saying that. We'll talk more about that uh, in a second. I think, but what he is saying is very clear that homosexuality is at odds with God's created order. He uses the phrase against nature. Okay, against nature. In other words, it's not the way uh, God created it to be. However, the, how it came about, it's not the way God created. And secondly, He wants us to understand that it's destructive. That it's you. You pay in yourself for that uh, choice if you go that road. Now, um, let me say this about it, though. Uh, uh, maybe kind of the next step of that is that yes, you pay uh, the price for it. And so, what that means in is that if you struggle with that, if you're here today and you struggle with that, uh, the word for you would be, okay, this is a very hard road to go on. This is a very hard thing for you to deal with. And uh, my heart goes out to you. God's heart goes out to you. But you have to resist this temptation just like someone who is heterosexual and single has to resist their temptation or someone who is married and has a temptation for illicit sex has their, so that whatever it is, because it's all destructive. So however it happened, whether it's genetic, we'll talk about this in a second, whether it's genetic, which has not been demonstrated yet, whether it's genetic, 
or whether it turns out to be, you know, environmental, sort of, say, sexual abuse, which is often involved, whether it's through dysfunctional family relationships, so whatever causes it, what's important is not what caused it for you to understand that if you pursue this, it will be destructive. It leads to a deeper and deeper loss of the self God created you to be. It's a self-destructive uh, process. Now, just a couple of things I want to say, this, and like I said, we don't have a lot of time to go into great detail, but I think it's important because it's such a hot-button issue. A couple of things, and there's a lot of bad information, a lot of misinformation. Uh, number one, I'd say, I think in this whole question of how so, uh, homosexuality comes about, uh, called the etiology of homosexuality, um, I think it's important to say that there is no definitive um, research that has shown that there's a, a genetic link at this point in time. Now, there may be at some point in time. That may happen because we have a lot of bad genetic things that happen, right? There's a lot of things. There's diseases and all kinds of things that are not the way that God created. And so I'm not saying it could never be shown that. I'm just saying at this point in time, there is no research that shows that. And often out there what you hear, there's acting as if there is, uh, that that is. But there has been no research like that. I'll come back to that in a second. Secondly... I think that the other thing that's important for us to know is homosexuality is not near as common as often it's, it's uh, assumed to be. Uh, for example, um, one of the terms, one of the percentages often used, you hear it all the time, is, well, 10% of people are, you know, uh, hom- are homosexual. They're kind of, it's genetic. They're born that way. It's like their, their eyes. It's like their, uh, their eye color. It's like hair color. It's genetic. You can't change it. And about 10% of the population and that is one of, remember last week I talked about urban legends, that everyone would be like 10% of your brain? That is an urban legend that was, that's never been established in any credible research. It was research that was taken out of context back with the researcher Kinsey, whose whole research has been discredited because he did so much of his research with like prison populations, you know? And so, um, so there has been no... There is, the the best research comes up over and over again, research from Europe, in the United States, and so on. The biggest, the best research comes up at about 2 to 4% of people consistently. 2 to 4% of population says that they believe that they are homosexual in orientation. And about twice, in that 2 to 4%, about twice as many men as women. So, um, but but here's the thing. Um, I think what Paul wants us to understand as we kind of sort of wrap this thing up. What Paul wants us to understand, big picture here, is that when a person or a culture rejects the truth about God, one of the things that's always impacted quickly is our sexuality. And whether it's in sexual immorality or, or uh, homosexuality, in that sense, that either way, that, that that's one of the areas that gets affected, impacted first. It's one of the most blatant areas that shows up because it's such an important area of our life. Um, the important thing for us here, and I think this is important for us as a church community, but also as we live and work with people in your family members, uh, you have uh, uh, people and co-workers and so on, it's so important that we remember this, that Jesus came to love us all, right? He came to love us all, and it's so important for us to create a community of healing, right? Not a community of condemnation, a community of healing, well, yes, we hold each other accountable and we grow and all the stuff in all these areas. But that Jesus came to, to heal us. He came to bring us back. And there's a great passage on this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And there in your note sheet, I put it there for you. And uh, we're just going to close with this. Paul says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? So, 
So Paul says, hey, let's get this straight, Corinthians. It was a new church. Corinth was the Amsterdam of its day, literally. A highly sexual charged city. It's what it was famous for. Uh, they had sayings about Corinth. Uh, you know, in fact, like to fornicate meant like Corinth. You know, it's like that, that's like that was what it was. So it was, it was a hotbed of sexuality. All these new Christians had just come to Jesus, and there were some false teachers that had come into the church that said, hey, there's no link between your sexuality and your spirituality. What you do with your body, it doesn't really impact your spirit. And Paul said, are you kidding me? Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you, and one of the first steps of following Jesus is getting straight on the whole sexual purity issue. And so that's the context. And he says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, you can't be a follower of Jesus and just, I'm going to go continue on my old lifestyle. You can't do that. He says, do not be deceived, neither the, uh, and catch that, do not be deceived. In other words, it's possible on this area. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, now catch that, very interesting, but Romans 1, you reject God, and what happens? Idolatry and then sexuality, right? And so these are the first two lists. And by the way, in the New Testament list, whenever there's lists like this, you'd notice this, whenever there's sin lists in the New Testament, don't be deceived, these kind of people don't go in, notice what's number one, it's always sexual immorality. This is a first step issue in our life, that if we're going to be serious about following Jesus as a congregation, we have to hold on to the standard. We, we have to seek uh, purity. Okay? So he says, um, don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral nor idolaters. And now he begins to spell out some, give some examples of types of sexual morality. Uh, nor adulterers, okay? nor male prostitutes. I told you it was kind of Amsterdam. Uh, nor homosexual offenders. So the Bible's very clear, homosexuality would fall under that. And so there's a movement on sometimes, oh, as, you know, Jesus is all for homosexuality as long as it's a committed love relationship. That's not, that, that's a, uh, becoming a, power, a positive teaching. It has nothing to do with Jesus or the Bible. Um, so, uh, and then he goes on to give some other kinds of sins, nor thieves, uh, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, kind of party animals, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, you know, rip-off artists, will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't be deceived. If you think that you can be a, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus and you just kind of live your life like you used to live, and he says, you're just, you're living in la-la land. You know, you're not in the part of the movement. Uh, and he says, but catch this, he says, and that is what some of you, what's the next word? Were. You catch that? Very important. What Paul is saying is, hey, they're in Corinth. Man, you got all this stuff. You're a new followers of Jesus. Hey, some of you, you were adulterous. Some of you were ripoff artists. Some of you were greedy. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were, and, but you see, that's what you were. He says, but look what happened to you. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit. God's come into your life. He's doing a new thing. And this is the message of Jesus. It doesn't matter what your sin is, that he has the power to heal you, to change you, to forgive you, and to shape you. So whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's sexual addiction, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's one of the other sins on these you know, thieves or whatever, it doesn't really matter what your past is. One of our sayings here at Rocky Peak is that Jesus always cares more where you're going than where you've come from. That's one of our core, core values. And so if you're here today and that's your struggle of homosexuality, I want you to hear that. 
Is this a community? We're here for you as you follow Jesus and learn to leave that past confusion out of your life and get healed. In fact, we have a great ministry on Friday nights that ministers to all kinds of people with different issues uh, called Celebrate Recovery. It's a great ministry. And it's anonymous, so no one lets you know who's there. Um, uh, But one of our... uh, one of our focus groups in there is for people struggling with sexual addiction, which includes uh, homosexuality as well. And we have brothers and sisters who've gone through this, and God has healed them and brought them out of this. And they're there, and they understand what you're going through. And so we want to be that kind of a church, right? So let's just wrap this whole thing. I, I want you to catch this core truth we talked about last time, that when we reject the truth about God in our life, the lights begin to dim, and confusion comes in. Paul's looked at it as a cultural level. It happens as you uh, creation, it happens as spirituality, it happens in sexuality. But you know what? It happens for us as followers of Jesus too, doesn't it? That when we reject what the Holy Spirit's telling us, the lights begin to go out, we begin to get confused. And so as we're going to see in the, in the coming weeks, here's one of the most important principles of spiritual life. If you want to grow, if this is how we got into the mess, by rejecting the truth, guess how we get out of the mess? By embracing truth whenever God shows it. That's the path to healing and life change. And we'll be talking about that in the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for what you're doing at this church. Thank you for the way you're bonding our hearts and you're creating a passion for you, a love for one another, and really creating a passion to follow you. God, not just to go through the motions, but to be people that are sold out, priority one kind of followers. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us about these things and continue to walk us through this series as we follow you. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Wow, see, no wonder I love you guys. Just like, all right, all right. Just keep on coming back because you pump me up for Sundays. You know what I'm saying? And that is a long, that's a long, hard pull. That's a long, hard pull. Yeah. I could have used you last Sunday at 9. I'm telling you that right there. Like, all right. Okay. Hey, yeah, yeah. Except for a lot of you, how many were in the venue last week? Yeah, that was a great experience. Huh? That's great. I wish I could have been there. All right. Uh, may the Lord be with you this week as you stand for both grace and truth in the assignment and the place that God has placed you. May you have the courage to speak the truth. May you have the compassion to speak it always with love. May people come to know us not as the religious right that hates, but may they come to know us as the people that are Christ's followers who will never pull back from speaking the truth, but will always speak it with a heart of compassion because we share the love of the God who loved us when we were his enemies, right? And we're going to be learning more about that in the coming weeks. May God go with you. And next week, I hope you can join us as we continue on with the indictment part two. We'll see you then.